All right, we're going to move back into our study of the confession. And uh, so if you have a copy, you can open it up to chapter 15 in the confession. In the back of the hymnal, it's page 678. And also open up in the Word of God to Philippians chapter 2. In full transparency, I wrote this lecture, I would, I'm guessing it would be the last week in April, and it's been sitting in my notebook since then, and I'm not one of those guys who can just you know, pull it back out and uh, get back in the spirit of the lecture. Um, and so if it looks like I'm reading more than normal, it's because I'm reading more than normal, and I'm assuming that it was good when I wrote it. And so... Um, I, th I think it'll be a blessing. Uh, and I think as I was looking over these notes again this, this afternoon, that this lecture will be sort of a commentary on what I said this morning about asking for the Holy Spirit. And uh, with, with respect to the specific details of repentance, uh, not that this is talking about asking for the Holy Spirit, but more along the lines of understanding what the Spirit does, and that way we know how to pray in asking for the Spirit. So, again, I trust that some of that stuff will come out and it'll be a little bit more clear. I'll read first this paragraph from the Confession, paragraph 3, and then I want to read Philippians 2, 12, and 13, a very well-known passage to us. And then I'll make the connection as we move forward. So the paragraph says, speaking of repentance, this saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin doth, by faith in Christ, humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace, with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit, to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. There's a lot in this paragraph. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. This is God's Word. Let's pray one more time. Father, we do need the help of Your Spirit. Lord, give us ears to hear. Uh, give us minds that can be attentive. Lord, we know that uh, the Lord's Day can be a long day and it can be a busy day and our minds can be strung out in a, in a bunch of different directions. 
But I pray that you would again visit with us and calm us and help us to learn from your word. To learn what it is you require of us and what it is you do for us. Help us to be honest in evaluating ourselves and our repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Since it has been so long since we looked at those first two paragraphs, I'm not going to, I'll give a little bit of recap, but if it doesn't make sense, I'm not going to try to make it make sense. I'll just say go back and listen to the audio. This paragraph doesn't work like most of the paragraphs that we've seen. Most of the time, the first paragraph sort of sets out the, the main subject in a broad form and then it's sort of unfolded from there. In this chapter, the first two paragraphs were sort of a preface to paragraph 3, which reads more like it ought to be paragraph 1. Paragraphs 1 and 2 dealt with various experiences or categories in the area of repentance, dividing people into different groups. Paragraph 2 encompasses paragraph 1, or the different people. Paragraph 1 dealt with those who were converted at riper years. People converted in an older age, it says, They've had some time to live in the state of nature and they've served divers' lusts and pleasures in their years. So that's dealing with those type of people and what their repentance will look like. And we can, by implication, compare that to people who converted in younger years. The repentance might look different, but at the end of the day, there will be repentance. Even an old person who's walked in the state of nature for 40 years they can't excuse themselves and say, well, this is just how I've been for so long. There will certainly be repentance. Then we come to paragraph 2. Everybody who is a believer, everybody who repents at some point in their lifetime is described here. Whether they're old or whether they're young, again, there still will be repentance. A young person can't come to Christ early and say, well, I don't really need to repent because I've not served some time in the state of nature and served divers' lusts and pleasures. They still have to repent. There still will be the work of repentance in them initially. And from that point, there will always be a continuing repentance and turning from sin throughout their lives. All saints are liable to grievous sins, those converted young or old. And again, all saints will be characterized by ongoing repentance. Now, paragraph 3 begins to deal with what we might consider the nuts and bolts of repentance. We're answering the question here, what is repentance? What is true repentance? Now this is a very important question. For I wrote down three, three reasons why this is an important question. Number one, because there is a great lack of teaching with regard to repentance. Even those who we might consider still find themselves in the, the biblical apostolic line of preachers who will actually preach repentance very few of them take the time to explain what is repentance. There's a difference between calling men to repent or commanding men to repent and taking the time to explain what exactly is it. So that's one reason that this is important. The second reason is because there are an abundance of substitutes when it comes to real repentance. We are, we are like factories. Uh, Calvin said we produce idols. We also produce substitutes for real repentance. We're very good at producing things that are not repentance and calling it repentance. 
And so at some point, we have to come back to the biblical witness and say, so what is it really? And then thirdly, not only do we create this abundance of substitutes, but sadly, we are willing to accept those substitutes from others. We make them, and then other people give them to us, and we say, well, okay, I guess. I'm convinced that true repentance continues to be one of the most common areas of deception and gullibility in the Christian church. Not because Scripture is unclear about what repentance is. Scripture is crystal clear, both by precept and example. It's, it's a, an area of deception and gullibility because we are easily led astray by our carnal desires. Whether I am the one repenting or somebody else is the one repenting and I'm dealing with them, both parties are constantly led astray. So we deceive ourselves into thinking we have repented when we haven't. We deceive others into thinking we have repented because we've deceived ourselves. Or somebody comes to us and we believe that they've repented. They deceive us because they are so self-deceived. Or we are easily deceived by others because really we, we want so badly for it to be true. When somebody says that they have repented and come to Christ, I want that to be a true statement. I don't want that to be false. And so very often we will take little, little shadows and hints of what might appear to kind of, sort of, if you look at it in the right light, it might look like real repentance. And we receive that and we take their word for it rather than saying, what has the Word of God said repentance is? And does this person manifest those fruits? Do I manifest those fruits? And what we do is we practically deny the sufficiency of the Word of God when we do that. We're saying God's Word has said repentance is this. I disagree. I'm going to call it this. And if somebody brings this, we'll just, we'll just take that as a substitute. And that's why we have to be clear on what real repentance is. Is. I said three. I guess this could be a fourth reason why this is so important. True salvation assumes true repentance. So if we are accepting substitutes, if we fail to diagnose ourselves in our repentance, or we fail to diagnose other people in their repentance, it's not just a difference of opinion. Souls are at stake. We're, we're playing with the souls of men when we don't say, this is repentance. If, if this is not true in me or in you, you're not a penitent man. You're not in Christ. So it's very important that we understand what is true repentance. Now I've broken up this paragraph using Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So that, that text I want to use to lay across this. This text tells us that there is a work of God in you and from that work of God in you, something comes out. He says, work outward. You, your job is to work out your salvation. And that's not regeneration. That's not justification. That's the sanctification, the two-sided graces where we participate. Paul says, you need to be working that out. And that doesn't mean like, like we say when our kids have an issue with one another and we say, y'all just need to work it out. It, it means to produce, to put forth outside of yourself. Work outwardly, you work outwardly, the fruits of the salvation 
We could add in there the word repentance. Work out your own repentance with fear and trembling. Produce it. As John the Baptist would say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now how does this happen? For it is God who works in you. So we work it out, but it starts with God working in. So that's how I want to break up this paragraph. God's work, essential to true repentance. And then your work, essential to true repentance. Repentance is a part of sanctification that we have to, we have to work out. And we can look at it and we can verify it by fruit. So first there's God work, God's work. Confession says this saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit. And we'll stop there. And notice the several phrases here. Saving repentance. That's true repentance. True change. The kind of repentance that accompanies a saving work of God. And this phrase, an evangelical grace or a gospel grace. A work of God imparting in a man his own self-working, like we talked this morning, the Spirit working. Remember I said that the fullness of the grace is found in Christ. All the fullness. And that grace has been won for us through the death of Christ. That's why we call it a gospel grace, an evangelical grace. The, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ achieved these things for us, and they are made over to us. Evangelical grace. And all graces, including repentance, are guaranteed to us in the new covenant. And these graces are worked in us according to the measure of Christ's gift by the Holy Spirit working in us. That's what we mean by an evangelical grace. Christ won the Spirit and the Spirit is producing this. So, true repentance will only be found in a true saint. And... True repentance will certainly be found in every true saint. Repentance is a gift of God. Now let me show you some texts that just vindicate that point, that this is God's work. Acts 5, 30 and 31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Notice the language, to give repentance. Christ has been exalted. His position consists in part of, in the authority to give repentance. Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying... Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God granted repentance that leads to life. This is why in the catechisms very often you'll see the question, what is repentance unto life? That's where they get that phrase. This repentance leads to life. It spills over into present spiritual vitality and joy now and eternal life. That's why it's saving repentance. Not that it justifies you, but that it preserves you unto eternal life. It's a saving work of God. Something God uses to keep you in His good graces. It's a gift of God. 2 Timothy 2, 
And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will again. God grants them repentance. And here we have an even more specific application. Yes, repentance is a gift of God. Man cannot produce it on their own. Man cannot coerce it in somebody else. But God can and does use men as a means to bring others to repentance. Especially the work of those who exercise oversight in the church through the preaching of the Word of God. Notice this is a pastoral epistle. Paul's writing to Timothy when he says, and the Lord's servant, he's talking about the elders in the church. God may perhaps grant repentance through gentle, patient, kind teaching of the elders. Now there are other means that God uses, but this shows one in particular, the use of men who preach and teach in a particular way. And the confession here also references Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, which we'll turn to in a minute. We read this this morning. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, or grace and supplication, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Now just, all I want you to see here is what God said. I will pour out a spirit of grace and please for mercy. I will pour out my spirit, God says, who will work in you this grace, and that grace will work to bring men to call out for mercy, to pray unto God, to mourn for Christ. Repentance is an evangelical grace, a gift of God, a work of God's Spirit in a person. Now, as we begin to examine our repentance, and even as we hear and look at others, not, to, not that we are you know, professional repentance examiners, but we, we need to be watching for ourselves and for others. Again, we see true repentance cannot be produced by an unbeliever. It's a work of grace of God. So imagine those people who you know, who I know, who have walked for some time, it appeared that they were walking with the Lord, and then they turned away. Okay? What kind of things did they produce that appeared to be repentance? Think about it. What did you see in their life that made you think, huh, something's happened here. But then they turned away. Whatever those things were, they weren't real repentance. Maybe, maybe they wept over their sin. Maybe they acted really sad or they showed great remorse over their sin. Or they would talk about it and decry the way they used to be. Oh, I used to be like this. And oh, in my younger days, this or that. And maybe they changed their lifestyle. Or they, they used to do these things and now they don't do those things anymore. They do these things. 
Or they changed their surroundings or the company they kept. I used to hang out with those people, but I don't do that anymore. I'm hanging out with new people. And perhaps they started to attend church regularly and started to read their Bible and to try to pray. If they're not still walking with the Lord, they're not His sheep, and all of those things, not repentance. This is why we have to be careful. Because unconverted men can produce a lot of things that outwardly look like repentance, and they're not repentance. Because they did not continue, we know that it wasn't real. And we know that because repentance is first and foremost a work of God, and what God works continues. God doesn't do any short-lived work. So it's a work of God, first and foremost, in you, that produces something. What God does in you comes out. So here's the second heading, your work. What happens when, a, when God has worked this inside of a person? He's given the Spirit, and we'll, we'll see some of the things that He, he does inside of a person, but it, this is where it begins to, to meet our activity. First, you're brought to a new sensibility. It says... This person, being by the Holy Spirit, made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin. You become sensible. This is something the Spirit works in a person. And your will, your mind, your heart is made sensible. You're given a new sensitivity to something that wasn't there before. The senses of the mind and the heart are enlivened to a new Reality. So here's an illustration. If you touch a hot stove, the, the skin, the nerve endings on, in your skin are going to become immediately sensible to the introduction of a new stimuli. We're going to call it hot. And your mind, those nerve endings are going to tell your mind, hot. Your mind's going to tell your arm, move. And your hand, you're going to pull your hand away. It's going to produce an action because this new stimuli has been brought into the senses. You've been made sensible. You're aware. You feel it. This is what happens in true repentance. God works in you upon your thoughts and your affections and your will so that you receive this sensibility. You are made aware of the manifold evils of your sin. Not just other people's sin. Your sin. Now notice that it does not say that you're made sensible of the existence of sin. Everybody, to some degree, is sensible to some kind of sin. That is no testimony to a true work of God except for the fact that you're made in His image. Everybody is aware of some type of sin. We're talking about the evils of your specific sin. The manifold evils, it says. Multitude of varying evils that characterize your personal sin. The details about your sins. Again, now now think about this, because we're moving outside of not just that initial work, but ongoing. Let's say tomorrow, you recognize a sin. The, The Spirit makes you aware and gives you this sensibility of the manifold evils of a particular sin. Some of those manifold evils are... The fact that your sin, whatever that thing is, is morally reprehensible in the sight of God. That you are liable to the judgment of God for that one sin. 
That, that that one sin is an affront to the holiness of God. When you act in that sin, that is a challenge, a defiance of the person of God. Whatever it is, the smallest, what we would consider the smallest of sins is you stepping up to the line with God and saying, I defy you. You will not tell me how to live. Every small sin, that, that little sin or that big sin is contrary to Christ. It is an abuse of His work, a contradiction of the beauty of His holiness. It stands opposed to Him in everything that He is. That sin. It's hurtful to other people. It has vast spreading consequences in your church and in your family and in the society in which you live. It's destructive to you and your own soul and your family. And we could go on and on. The manifold evils, just how wicked and vile is this sin. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to bring all of these things to bear on you. This is what He's doing. He's working. Helping you to see evil number one, evil number two, evil number three. Can you see how wicked, how vile, how disgusting these sins are? In Acts chapter 2 it says, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They They were made sensible of their sin." It wasn't as though they immediately became to the or came to the mental awareness that you know we did crucify I think we did crucify a guy about fifty days ago. Yeah, I think he's right. No, they knew that they crucified a man. But Peter preached and said, You've crucified the Lord of glory. And they were cut. They realized what they had done. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Something's got to be done. In Psalm 51 and verse 3, David said, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. That sensibility. I know it. It's in front of my face. I can't get away from it. I've been made aware of my sins. Transgression and sin there, they both carry this notion of offense to God. I've transgressed God. I've fallen short of God's glory. Where there is no sensibility of the offense against God, there is no true repentance. True repentance will consist of more than that, but never less than that. Be leery of your own so-called repentance or the so-called repentance of others when they never mention the fact that they offended God. Everybody knows they're doing stuff they shouldn't do. Everybody knows they're doing stuff that's messing up their family. Everybody knows they're doing stuff that's messing up their marriage. What we need to find out is, do you realize you are a stench in the nostrils of God? That's where it, that's, that's where it begins, because the Spirit of God is helping you to see God's perspective on your sin. And that's where it starts. God is not first and foremost upset that you're not getting along with your wife. That, he is upset with that. But he, first and foremost, you've sinned against Him. So it starts there. You get this sensibility, and then there's an exercise of faith. Which is, it's interesting how closely faith and repentance go together. It says, This saving repentance is an evangelical grace, whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, doth by faith in Christ. This is the manner in which repentance is acted out. It's acted out in faith. Faith in Christ. By faith in Christ, which is an act of the soul of a man, 
we respond to what the Spirit has revealed to us concerning our sin. So we go back to the stove. The mind tells the arm, pull the hand away. The, the will or the affections of the mind tell the man, act. There's something that needs to be done, but that act is an act rooted in or growing out of faith. The actions of the, the will and the affections in the mind are carried out with the fundamental underlying apprehension of Christ and laying hold of Christ in order to act. So imagine that you're, you're running from a bear and you've got a cliff. There's a four-foot gap to the other side of the cliff and a thousand-foot drop. Okay, you recognize something has to be done and you begin to act. Your mind tells your body to act and what you're doing is acting in faith that these legs hanging off of your body can move the whole thing across this hole and once the whole thing gets over on the other side of that hole, the ground over there will hold you up. You see, there, there's something that you've, you've gotten a hold of that's causing you to make that action. When it comes to repentance, it's Christ. It's faith in Christ, an exercise of the whole soul flying to Christ as God has put Him forth that causes repentance. That, that produces it. It's the, the first act of repentance, we could say, is really faith. Christ is the one exalted to forgive sins. I have to go to Him. Christ is the propitiation for our sins. I have to go to Him. God or Christ is our substitute in living and dying. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is the good shepherd. Christ is the great physician of souls. Christ is our elder brother. Christ is our advocate with the Father. Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. Christ is my only hope. Christ is my only refuge. He's the only mediator between me and God. We could go on and on. Knowing and believing and trusting in all of these things as my only hope for salvation, this one man, my only plea for mercy, I know that and so I act in faith. I act. That's the first act of the will. I'm, I'm, I'm exercising faith. But this... this produces more. It moves from the, the will and produces other things. Four things I've listed here. By faith, you will humble yourself. The Spirit makes us sensible of the manifold evils of sin. And by faith in Christ, we, it says, will humble Himself for it. The sin. Humbles Himself for the sin. If you are repentant, you are humbling yourself for the sin. Now again, there are so many false substitutes for true humility. People understand, I think in, in Christian circles, we understand that if I have sinned, there ought to be some uh, humility, but we fake it. So we just act really downcast. Ah, oh, ah, oh, shucks. I sinned. That's not humility. Or people cry. Or people say, I'm just, I'm just so embarrassed before others. Or maybe they really are embarrassed before people. These are not humbling yourself for the sin. To humble yourself for the sin is in your own heart and mind to bring yourself beneath the hand of God. To come under His hand. To concur with God's law. I stand condemned for that sin. To concur with God's justice. I deserve punishment for that sin. As A.W. Pink would say, it is taking sides with God against my sin. 
I come under your hand, God. And, and what you have said about my sin is true. And what your justice demands of my sin is right and pure. And I have no plea but Christ. And again, these things are easy for us to say. They're easy to confess and say out loud. Just saying it, just, just confessing it doesn't mean it's true. This is an inner working of the soul that only an individual will know if they're really humbling themselves for that sin. This humility will be characterized by godly sorrow. And the text here, its reference is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is godly grief. There is worldly grief or sorrow. Godly sorrow is sorrow produced by God for the reason set forth by God about why that sin ought to be sorrowed over in order to glorify God. It's God-centered grief. God-centered sorrow. This humility will be characterized by a detestation of the sin. A true hatred of that sin. A despising of the particular sin. And again, when we're talking about repentance, this is not just generals, specifics, particulars. Detest an individual sin. Until you've found an individual sin and you've marked it off all by itself, you can't repent of it. It's not just, well, I'm just repenting of my sin. What sins? If you can't name them, you're not convicted of them. If you can't name them, the Spirit has not made you sensible of them yet. No one touching a hot stove says, well, I feel something. I, I just, uh, I don't know, pain, I guess. I guess I'll pull some part of my body away from something somewhere because I feel pain. No, you feel it where you're touching. You're made sensible of the, the specifics. So when we have this detestation, it's of a particular sin. And there is self-abhorrency. To abhor is to regard with disgust or hatred. So self-abhorrency is to regard yourself with disgust and hatred. Now does this mean that Christians live daily with this boiling hatred in their heart for everything that they are, every aspect of their existence. They're just, no. We're dealing with a particular sin. Self-abhorrency with regard to the particular sin where a person is disgusted. You, you become disgusted that you committed that sin. You're disgusted that you were so blind as to walk in that sin. Disgusted that you were so easily led by your carnal lusts after walking with the Lord for however long. Disgusted at your complete inability apart from God to exert any good or defense. Disgusted at the reproach that you've brought upon Christ. And you abhor yourself with regard to that sin. I can't believe that myself committed that sin. Again, the, the Scripture reference that's given here is from Ezekiel 36. 
which is very telling because this is an enumeration of the blessings of the new covenant and the work of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 31, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. You will remember. You will bring to mind past sins. And you will loathe yourself. Whether it's past five minutes ago or past five years ago, as these things come to your mind and you realize what you have done, you abhor that in you. And all of that again falls under humbling yourself. Bringing yourself under the hand of God, taking sides with God with regard to that sin. The second action is a praying for pardon. The Spirit makes us sensible of the manifold evils of sin, and we do by faith in Christ humble ourselves for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, self-abhorrency, praying, going to God. Now, what would encourage me to go to the God whom I have offended, under whose hand I now stand rightly condemned for that sin? Why would I ever go to that? Remember, these things are acted in faith in Christ. And through faith in Christ... I not only can come to God in true repentance, I am thrust to God in prayer. Thrust into His presence. There will be praying for pardon. There will be praying for forgiveness. There will be a praying for a clearing of guilt. I need to be cleansed. I need pardon. Now we very often discourage folks from what we might call uh, time and place Theology, or uh, I pray to prayer salvation. So, in in this in that system, everything from here on out is traced back to that one moment. We just go back to the time and a place. Has there been a time and a place? Do you remember the time? And we 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 discourage that, which is right and good, but we can't swing to the other extreme where we pretend that going to God in true prayer for pardon is anything other than absolutely essential for repentance. So we we have this one extreme where it's all about the moment in time. We can't go to the other extreme where it's like, well, it doesn't really matter if I do this or that here or there. There's there's no time frame for anything. We just sort of float through life. When there is repentance, you will go to God. You will bring it to Him. Where there's true repentance, there will be true prayer. You want to learn how to pray? You want to develop your prayer life? Start analyzing your sins. Once you get an apprehension of your sins, you'll pray. And until then, you won't pray. If there's a difficulty praying for pardon, then you go, you've got to go back and spend time in step number one. And being made sensible of the manifold evils of your sin and being made sensible of the mercy in Christ. Prayer for pardon bubbles out of your sense of guilt and apprehension of mercy in Christ. I realize I'm a sinner. I realize there's mercy in Christ. I'm going going there. If I'm not making a beeline for the throne of grace, I've not understood my sin or I've not understood Christ. You understand? A lot of people like Christ, but they don't go to Him because they don't recognize they're sinners. 
They know, they, they know of a Jesus, but why go if they're fine? There are a lot of other people who realize that they're sinners, but they don't know anything about Christ, so they just, why would I go to that God? I'm going this direction. It's both. If true prayers do not exude, then one of these two things has not been truly grasped. Now, a very common objection here is, is if, you, if you're a true Christian, your sins have already been dealt with on the cross, and Christ has, has already issued the pardon, then why do we have to keep going back and asking again and again for pardon? Number one, because we're commanded to. But secondly, and more to the point, for a truly penitent person, coming to God in prayer for pardon, rather than presuming upon His pardoning grace, is the very act which calms and settles and assures the soul. Communion with God assures the saints that a pardon has been issued. When you hear this question, why, do, why would I need to go back to God for forgiveness if my sins have already been dealt with? That's not a Christian. A Christian says, why would I not go to God? Everything in me cries out to be in communion with God. I'm drawn to be. And so for the penitent person, we love to go to God. Even if the Scriptures didn't tell us to, we'd probably go anyway just to ask for it again. I need to be reminded of the pardon that has been issued in Christ. So we pray for pardon. God, forgive me of my sins. I need to be pardoned. Then number three, there's a praying for strength of grace. This, this is connected to what we talked about this morning. Asking for the Holy Spirit. Praying for strength of grace. We do not presume upon God's grace. We come to Him and ask Him for it. And again, it's this communion between us and God. We asking and He providing. Is what, that's what the repentant sinner longs to have. I want to come and ask so that I can hear you say again that you're going to give it. That's, that's what we're looking for. Many men will make outward moral reformations who make no effort to share in communion with God. And they're satisfied with that. They feel good about the changes they've made. Have you been to God? Well, I wouldn't say all that. I'm just making great changes. That's not repentance. One mark of false repentance is that it's satisfied with moral reform. True repentance is satisfied when God is found. And there has been some fellowship Restored fellowship, grace has been given. That's what we're after. So there's a praying for strength of grace. And this grace is not just a whitewashing of the sin. We talked about how people say grace, and they don't define it. And they act like grace is, you know, here's my sin, a big hole in the living room floor, and here's the grace rug. I just roll it out over top, and it's all gone. That's not grace. Grace is the impartation of the power of God Himself which enables, empowers the sinner to move forward in the language of the confession with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. True repentance doesn't end with a prayer. A lot of people think that. They go to the altar, they pray, they get up, I repented. Nah. You might have begun repentance. That's a step. True repentance continues. A prayer of repentance will be met with the power of God that produces purpose. Godly intention. I'm purposed, I'm intended, and endeavor, which is 
specific actions. And these actions are carried out by supplies of the Spirit. So I have prayed for strength of grace, which the Spirit gives, and these, this, He gives them by His supplies. And the penitent man, woman, boy or girl is empowered by the strength of grace, supplied by the Holy Spirit, to walk before God unto all well-pleasing and all things. To walk in a way that pleases God. To no longer conduct oneself in sin, but to conduct oneself in holiness. So true repentance produces that prayer. I pray for pardon. I pray for strength of grace. And as the Spirit supplies me that with that grace, I purpose and endeavor begin to act in holiness, walking in a way that pleases God. True repentance does not result in dropping the wheel off in this ditch and yanking the car back on the other side and running off the road in the other ditch and going from one sin to another. That's not true repentance. You did not repent. Repentance is not when we replace one sin with another. Repentance is not when we take a public sin and get rid of it and replace it with a private sin like bitterness. That's not repentance. Neither does true repentance result in replacing sins with a vacancy of action. True repentance results in replacing sinful actions with godly actions. That's a part of endeavoring. You're looking for replacements. I did this, that was sin. I'm done with that. And in its place, I'm putting a godly action. People ever say to you, oh, so you're the ones who believe in replacement theology. You say, yeah, sure. I believe that when God regenerates a man and he repents, he replaces his sinful habits with godly habits and walks in holiness. He replaces. See, this is the problem. Is a lot of people think that repentance is getting rid of sinful things and then you just sit in boredom and, and, and collect you know, calligraphy things of Bible verses. And so they think the Christian life, oh, that's, I don't want to come to that because, well, I would lose all my friends and all my fun. and all. No, you're replacing sinful, destructive, God-offending habits with righteousness, a full life. People who come to Christ and repent of sin, they start to live at that point. They, they are finally filled with the, 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 the living and the conduct that they were made to walk in. And that is to all... Well-pleasing. Pleasing God. Not boredom. I don't know any of us in here who are bored as Christians. We, we recognize that, but these false pictures of repentance have been so pervasive that the world has concluded that Christianity is, is boring. It's, that there's, there's nothing to it, and that shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way. We, we, of all people, ought to be living. And, and, we, and we see that when we read biographies of men like Brainerd and like Machane who, who lived. Their, their 30 years of living was more than 80 years of any, any man. The Scripture references at this point deal with the, this issue from positive and negative standpoint. Psalm 119.6 Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Shamelessness before God and men comes when we fix our eyes on all the commandments of God. Not just some. Wherever there is shame, wherever there is guilt, wherever there is fear, 
wherever there is hiding, wherever there is a covering up of actions, wherever there is discretion, or, or you, you, discreet would be the better way to, for us to think of it, a discreetness in our dealings. Things are kept hush-hush. Don't talk about that around the church people. Don't mention that around the pastor. Don't tell so-and-so that we do that. I can't let somebody else find out I'm doing that. That's because your eyes are not fixed on all of the commandments of God. They might be fixed on some, but over here they're not. When your eyes are fixed on all of them, shameless. Anybody can come. Search my home anytime, day or night. Search my house, watch my family, watch my life. I'm without shame because I fixed my eyes on all of the commandments of God. That's what repentance produces. Not just an absence of sin but a fullness of obedience to all the commands of God. If you repent of one sin and replace it with another sin, all you're doing is transferring your shame from one area to another. There's still shame. You're hiding. I hope so-and-so doesn't find out. What would they think of me if, if this or that? All the commandments. And then negatively, Psalm 119, verse 128 Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. That's how you know you've repented. I hate every false way. Not just of the one way. A lot of people will say, well, I, I hate alcoholism. And so I'll turn from alcoholism to fishing. And now all my time is spent in the boat, on the lake. Well, that's not... That's not a, a hatred of every false way. You just went from one false way to another false way. So we hate, we love, fix our eyes on all the commandments of God and hate every false way. Pursuit of every good way and hatred of every false way is the only way to find joy in the Christian life. The only way. There will be the phrase I used, beating your head against the wall, misery, misery upon misery, trying, trying to no avail, trying this, trying that to no avail, as long as your efforts are replacing one sin with another. Until you are devoted to every good way and you hate every false way, that's how it's going to be. But when you hate every false way and fix your eyes on all the commandments of God, that's where joy comes. The fullness of joy that... Christ intends for us to have. Again, until then, we, we wallow and flounder because we're just going from one sin to another. Or, we don't take the time to walk in true repentance. I think this is, this is a problem. Biblical repentance is not a quick thing. It's not a quick fix. You don't just get down on your knees and stand up and say, I repented. A lot of that's another one of these substitutes that people think that I confessing my sin is repentance. No. This, this, this is a work. It's not, God, forgive me of my sins and help me to do better. That's not repentance. That won't work. If I'm going to be brought to see the manifold evils of my sin and take the time to bring those things to God, the Holy Spirit's going to have to use the Word of God to bring these things to bear upon my soul so that I can be made sensible of the manifold evils of my sin. And that's not a quick study. That's not just boom, boom, boom. This is a lifetime. And, and very often, periods of time dealing with one particular sin. But you might recognize that it's wrong. 
All, everybody at church says it's wrong. I mean, I guess it's wrong. Until the Holy Spirit makes you sensible of the manifold evils of that sin in your heart, you can't repent. You won't repent. So in light of these things, this is just a, a, a quick application that I thought was might be helpful for you. It's helpful for me for, that you know this. Do you see why preachers have to be specific in our applications? This is why when I preach, I try to be specific. And sometimes it's useful and maybe sometimes it's not. It, and it misses everybody, but I hope that they're useful from time to time. How can we preach in such a manner that we expect the Spirit to bless and trust that He's going to use it to pour out grace and pleas for mercy if we're not laboring to make some attempt to tighten the screws on specific sins upon the consciences of specific men? Because that's what repentance is. So as I'm preaching a text and I am made sensible of a sin and I recognize this might be something in our congregation, I've got to labor to make that specific sin visible. I've got to labor to speak and open up the Word in such a way that the Holy Spirit can use my words and my vocal cords to get into your ears the manifold evils of that sin. Pray. We, we, the men talked earlier about praying for preachers. You need to be praying that I can be sensible to not only the manifold evils of my own sins, but also sensible to the sins in the congregation so that I can preach in such a way, and anybody who preaches can preach in such a way that it's useful. This is like praying. This is like going to somebody who has a million dollars and asking them, hey, I wish you would consider giving me the money. Okay? When I ask you, when I tell you, you need to be praying that I can preach in this way, it's not to make me a better preacher. It's for your good. You get the benefit. You get the spiritual blessing when you pray that those who are delivering the Word would be able to make these specific applications so that we can walk in repentance. It's a work. It's a lifelong work. Repentance is a, a great gift from God. It's a laborious work. We have to give ourselves to it. Okay? Alright. Let's pray and then we'll stand and we'll sing together.